Welcome to The Great Conversation, where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets. Ideas can change the world. This is a special edition of The Great Conversation. Usually, I um, am in the role of learner. That is, I'm actively uh, seeking out people with those ideas that literally are changing their part of the world. And uh, I just enjoy that so much. I'm, I'm a forever voracious student. Um, but today, uh, there is a gentleman who I have interviewed in the past. In fact, just recently, uh, because he has such a deep expertise in leadership development. His name's Daniel Halleck. Uh, I think in the podcast, I called him Dr. Daniel Halleck because of his PhD background. But uh, I, I don't think he likes necessarily referring to that because then, then he's not seen as the wonderful, approachable guy he is. So Daniel said he wanted to interview me in a great conversation. So Daniel, I'm not sure what to expect here, but it's all yours. Well, it's a delight to be with you, Ron. And the reason I'm careful to be called doctor is because psychology is not medicine. And I'm always wor worried that one day someone's going to ask me to respond to an emergency as a first responder. So you just got to be careful how people address you. I love it. I love it. But Ron, you know, you and I have known each other for a long time. And um, the path to value is such a unique methodology and approach to growing value for business owners, especially in that small to mid-size company. I first got exposed to the path to value methodology when you and I connected at um, a university in where I was a part of the faculty and staff in the business school. You were part of the board of trustees and you would come in regularly uh, graciously to help advise and coach my students. And then you ended up adjunct um, teaching as a professor in the graduate business programs as well. And so I was just struck by the unique approach to the path to value. And I think that idea of creating value and a pathway that everyone wants a path to value, and then the methodology you've put behind it is something that would be a value, pun intended, to the listeners on your podcast who often hear you interview others. But today I want to turn it around and hear um, what is the Sage Group's methodology and process for path to value? And what does it look like for individuals to take their own path to value? Well, thank you very much, uh, Daniel. The, um, by the way, when I was on the trustees, I was approached by the dean of the MBA program uh, a professor who had led uh, a number of courses in the MBA program had uh, brain cancer. And he asked me, do you know anything about leadership and change? And I said, absolutely. I live it every day. And he goes, could you teach that class? And I thought, I thought, it, you know, it might be interesting for you to know, Daniel, because this course curriculum actually embodies a lot of the things I used to mentor your students on. Because as you've heard me say in the past, one of the biggest challenges uh, to building great companies and also uh, nurturing great employees is this idea of breaking down their mental constructs. Uh, <laughs> and, and this was a little bit, uh, quite frankly, a little bit radical because I'm in there coaching your MBA students uh, saying at the same time, you better not pay too much attention to what you're being taught. 
<laughs> but but let, let me read you something. The goal of the course, I'll j- I just pulled it up here. The goal of the course is to enhance your understanding of the nature and the processes of innovative organization and what it takes to lead and manage them as a process of change. So leadership and change all tied into this concept of persistent innovation. And innovation, I don't know if you know this, has probably uh, supersedes all the financial meltdowns, all the recessions, all the depressions, innovation, the coverage of innovation is consistent across all those economic cycles. It's the wellspring of American competitive advantage. It's why in that MBA program, Daniel, uh, 50% of my students came from overseas trying to learn what this Mm. cracked the code of American competitive advantage, which was seen as innovation, whether that's entrepreneurship or intrapreneurship, that is uh, starting something within a large organization. It's the source of our industry development, our vitality and renewal. And here's the segue. For a small business owner, it's all about your path to value. Does that make sense? It does. And so that's what I want to dive into, because when you think about the small business owner and creating strategic options for them, you and I have talked about for that small business owner, it's often at the intersection of either a unique opportunity that came upon them, that a window of opportunity that they may or may not be ready to take advantage of, or a pain that they're facing that is driving them to start to consider what is the path to value and those strategic options. But we've talked about the the state of the small business owner, right? Today, depending on the surveys you look at, uh, it is estimated that in the small to mid market, 88% of owners have no written plan to transition their business. Nope. Um, most of them are going alone. So uh, 80%, again, four fifths have never sought even advice about their transition. So it's not on their mind. There's zero, there's little mind share about it. Um, and many of them actually 70% don't even have an idea about what their after tax income needs would need to look like to support their lifestyle. And so Tell me more about what are you seeing? I mean, there's so many other data points um, in terms of the mind of the small to mid-sized business owner and what they are dealing with in terms of the opportunity in front of them or the pain that is driving them to consider what might be next. Great question. A little bit of background. I was that small business owner. I also was the intrapreneur in a Fortune 5 company. So I've seen it from the big co. I've seen it from the startup. I've seen it from the small to midsize. So I've lived in their shoes. And by the way, just because they can't answer those questions in the survey you just noted, it doesn't mean that they're incredibly bright people. They're resourceful. And they're the bedrock of our economy. Did you know that that these small businesses represent 99% of the country's businesses and over half of the country's workforce? I mean, this is this is an inc- you you wonder why when I wrote the Sage Group business plan 20 years ago, 
I focused on this segment. These are business owners that are operationally bound to the business, Daniel, because guess what? They don't have much time to think out of the box. They're trying to get, get customers. Done. They're trying to get it done. It's yeah. it's not because they're they're not thinking about it. They they a lot of times just don't have the resources. I mean, if you look at how many employees they have, you know, a, a two million dollar company has some clay there. I can work with that clay. Well, you know, they have ten to twenty employees. You know, when you get beyond twenty employees up to a hundred, they're probably around a seven to ten million dollar company. And when you get to ten to, uh, I mean, a hundred to five hundred employees, you're you're starting to talk forty to fifty million dollar company, right? Uh, what a what a great sweet spot. And a lot of those owners are 50, 60 years old. They're not far from wanting to cash in on the one asset that's probably going to fuel their retirement years. If I was somebody in the financial wealth management business, I'd be focused in on those business owners because that is what I want to focus on. But, but now let's look at the psychological profile. I kind of gave you the work profile, but let's think about the psychological work um, uh, uh, profile. And I've been there, by the way. It's lonely to be a leader in a small company. It is incredible, lo incredibly lonely. You're you're laying away at night thinking about um, payroll. Um, if you're on the side, you you talked about opportunity as as well as risk. If you're on the side of opportunity, you're trying to make some incredibly wise decisions, not only about your current state, but your future state of value. How are you going to grow this thing? Should I sell out now? What about my employees? What about the legacy of what I built? How do I preserve that legacy? Am I just going to cash out and lay on a beach? What am I going to do with my personal journey after I sell the business. So that psychological profile is so profound. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes absolute sense. And that owner is their, their heads down focused on building their business. Um, and so they don't often have the time or resources to be able to consider, well, what might be next after this? They are yoked to building that value. Absolutely. So when I went to create the original business plan, I like to say, uh, and I learned this at being a professor, um, you start with this um, native skill set. You know, I like to say the scars on my back are, represent the wisdom I have now today. So you, you're learning by doing. You, you don't really come out of business school knowing anything. You really learn by doing in creating a business. So I I actually had what I call an unconscious methodology for building successful businesses. But now I'm starting a company where I'm going to have to start teaching it. Does that make sense? No, it, it does. And I think you're describing part of the reason I love working with, uh, with entrepreneurs. But part of what you're saying is that you had that unconscious methodology and you'd seen it um, both in helping companies grow their value, go to um, sale, uh, potentially go public and even acquire. So you'd, you'd seen that on a variety of angles, um, from that investment grade business plan to help grow value, but you hadn't actually 
documented, codified it, put it in a methodology. It was all intuitive inside for you as you do that with companies you were part of. Right. And then I had to document it. I had to create, like you said, a path path to value methodology. And by the way, back to the heart of the owner, my heart for the owner. Uh, many of these people, unlike me, um, went on this journey and they got to a point where someone wanted to buy them or they wanted to sell. And they weren't strategically positioned for that negotiation. They went to somebody otherwise known as a commercial real estate broker. They went to a broker of a business and they papered the deal, but they left tons of money on the table because they didn't spend a few years in the construction of their business, creating a strategic value proposition, investor value proposition. They had maybe a value proposition for their product or service, but they didn't have a strategic investor valuation and premise. And, uh, and here's the secret sauce of the methodology. The entire methodology is designed around that competitive advantage about going beyond the multiples that are the comps in the industry. It'd be like suddenly taking your home on the block and saying the real estate, all the real estate people say it should go for 600,000. And I, and I say, no, no, we're going to position it. So it's worth 1.2 million. So it's that kind of value premise that I use in the construction of the value play. Notice I didn't say the business plan. I said the value play because everyone, Daniel, here's the secret. Everyone has to sell their business at some point. They're going to either have to sell it to the next generation. That's called a succession plan, but there's still a strategic valuation of that plan. They're going to have to maybe create an ESOP where they sell it to their employees. They're going to have to sell it to an acquirer. Hey, they may even get lucky enough if they position right for an IPO. But the point is, you can't take it with you. They're going to have to sell it one day. So I help them build it with the end in mind. Okay. That, so that's interesting. The idea of strategic value and that positioning you're talking about. Um, say more about that. I, I understand that intuitively. And I, I've had so many conversations with owners who either got to the dance and they weren't ready to dance like you just described. Um, and so the deal didn't go through or they did, they papered it. The transaction occurred and there's a bit of seller's remorse or seller's regret where they maybe didn't get the premium, the strategic premium that they could have. So what I'm hearing you say, Ron, is this is different than just one day I realize, oh my goodness, uh, one day I want out of my business um, and I can't take it with me forever. Even those who love their business, they won't do it forever. So whether they they realize that at that moment, I won't be doing this forever or I am ready to move on. It's not as simple as let me put the sign up in the front yard to use the real estate analogy. And I start getting people walking through the house. You're talking about a different process and a different level of readiness. So talk to me, say, say more. How does somebody know if I'm a business owner, how do I know I have the window of opportunity? How long will it last? And how do I get ready for that moment of strategic positioning? Well, believe it or not, I'm going to 
take your question, but I'm going to apply it in a different way before we get to the end event. I'm going to ascribe the window of opportunity to be their current business model. So let's talk about that. Actually, what you've just done is start the path to value. The path to value starts with the owner, the mind of the owner. Now, I'm going to apply this quote from Steve Jobs to every stage of the path to value. And the quote is, don't ask a customer what they want or need. Study, study their behaviors and you'll figure out what they actually need. And so we're going to talk behaviors now. And the first starts with the mind of the owner. So if the mind of the owner truly wants to create a valuable business, I study their behaviors to see if they've done so. How do I do that? I start with, believe it or not, not their company. Most consultants will go right to, how do I optimize current state? How do I optimize their sales? I call these the silos of excellence. I'm going to optimize sales. I'm going to optimize culture. Oh, whoops. My strategy and execution as a company might impact how my company, my company's employees feel about me. And yet I just started with culture because everyone says I should start with culture. Or what if I get my financials in place? Look for ways to optimize my profit principle. Ah, but you know what the real secret is? It's called a whole company. I was going to say, you're looking at the whole, you're not just looking at the parts. The whole company. And by the way, because of your leadership background, I know you think about wholeness a lot in personal and professional development, but can you imagine spending a lot of time teaching personal and professional development and not having a receptacle for me to play with what I've just found out about myself? If I can't, what? no wonder business owners have a lack of engagement in their employee workforce because they haven't got their strategy and business model right yet and their operational execution. If you have that, then you can find the right people sitting on the right seats on the bus who are on a personal and professional journey with you that aligns with your personal and professional journey with your business. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And what you're saying is that goes back to that window of opportunity, which gets expressed in the business model they have and the environment in which they find themselves. Right. And now also, by the way, at the owner, this mind of the owner, I call it this at this mind of the owner stage, I also really with obviously building a level of trust with the owner, it's very important to get to their wealth plan. Part of the transaction of value in selling a business is the valuation you get. And then what are you going to do with it? And I really get into this because I'm not only building a path to value for the company, I'm building a path to value personally for the owner. Does This is so important to me because most owners let go of that business, quite frankly, and they die. Or they don't know why they just did it. They just felt like they had to. I had one business owner who was a second generation owner and literally he was tired and burnt out and he thought it was running a business. No, it wasn't. It was running the wrong business model. <laughs> he wasn't juiced anymore. Mm. And once we unlock that key, again, don't study 
Don't ask him what his wants are. Study his behaviors. You'll understand his needs. By delving into the mind of the owner, I realized why he was burnt out. And so um, this is a very important step. If we can get into the psychology of the owner, if we can understand what burnout looks like, loneliness looks like, operational effectiveness looks like, uh, how does he think of himself as a leader, not only in his company, but in his market? And by the way, I apologize. I keep saying his. Uh, I'm using that generically. Um, we have um, We have a good, good starting point. But then I pivot to something called the market. Would you like to hear about my mind of the market analysis? I would love that, Ron. And to, to recap what I think I'm hearing uh, initially, you don't go in and say, how do we optimize each of these silos of excellence starting with the company? You start with the owner, studying their behavior, discovering their true needs, because what I'm hearing, I think this is really key. The path to value is not just about how do I get that exponential value, which I want to tease out a little bit more because exponential value sounds audacious, but it's not about just about how do I get that exponential value and get the right valuation for my business and make that clean exit. You're also talking about the personal value, what it's going to do for them and their own generational legacy. I'm thinking of the um, owners I know through the Sage Group, who would say that the process was personally transformational uh, and also for their own competence, their professional transformation, but of course, the company value as well. So it's not just the company, it's the it's them and bringing their own people along for uh, a, a value transformation personally, while the business is the vehicle for that. If I can wax philosophically, thank you, Daniel. Would I? If I could wax philosophically, please we're, do. We're redefining wealth. We're redefining what that moment looks like when I release my company into somebody else's hands, and we're redefining what success and wealth looks like. So, for my owners. They get to the end and they see that their employees have a next generation view of their personal and professional development because they were valued in the transaction and, um, and their new home. Uh, they, we redefine wealth as not just the money, but also the fact that the processes we redesigned sales, marketing, operations, we defined became valuable to that new acquirer in such a way where you influence the industry. Here we take a small business. I like to think of it as a tail on the market dog and we wag the market instead of the market wagging us. Okay, so get more to the market there. So it's start, it's starting with the owner, really understanding their psychology and true needs, not just starting with company optimization. That is correct. And then you move to the market. So how would you describe that mind of the market and the path to value journey? Uh, the other day in my podcast with you, you stole my line, by the way. I just want you to know, you because I often refer to a marketplace as a garden. 
and you used it in the leadership development context, which was very cool, by the way. I'm so glad. It means I'm leaving a little bit of footprints behind uh, with, with my uh, metaphors. But it truly is a garden, if you think about it. A market ecosystem is much like a garden ecosystem, right? And it all goes to flourishing. But there's going to be some, there's going to be insects in there, vermin. There's going to be invasive species, right? So I, um, you know, if if you came to me tomorrow and said, I'm in XYZ market, I go, great. Well, aren't you going to look at my company, my silos of excellence? No, no. I'm going to go into the marketplace and I'm going to look at all the influencers of that customer's behavior. I'm going to look at people who look like you. I'm going to look at um, I'm going to look at uh, the uh, media influencers. I'm going to look at the consultants. I'm going to look at all these different influencers that go into what eventually leads to a sale from your company. I'm literally looking at the transactions of value that are occurring, not necessarily directly, but also indirectly with the end customer. Why is this important? Because we're looking for gaps and inefficiencies in the market ecosystem itself. And that those gaps and inefficiencies could be opportunities for innovation eventually when I go back in to my customer's company. Does that make sense? It does. And so this, Ron, this is different than what we typically think of as market research, right? I'm going to go ask a bunch of clients what they want. And invariably, they're going to say better service, lower price, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, no matter what the field, that's, that's, what, that's what we're going to get back. Exactly. Your, so this is different than market research. This is looking at the ecosystem the garden, to use your analogy, and all the influences to figure out, is this a healthy garden that you live in or not? Where are the pockets of health? Where are is there uh, disease or vermin? And what are what is working well, what's not, and what is not considered? You're looking for opportunities and gaps and really understanding how the ecosystem they live in operates. Daniel, you're so intuitive here. That's exactly right. And by the way, I still go to the customer and I ask them a lot of questions that invariably circulate around how they make decisions, how they make buying decisions. And gosh, I hate saying this in public, but we're all culpable. You and I are culpable if you think about it, because I'm going to say something. Buyers are liars. Now, let me tell you why. I'll give you an example. I'm offended now. I'm offended yeah, now. I, I'm, I'm sure you are. I'm sure you are. But there, there was a wonderful gentleman. Um, I should mention his name, but uh, without permission, I won't. But he, he ran. Um, he was a uh, executive uh, sales officer for a company when I first met him. And he was talking about going, um, realizing as he's driving downtown, he sees a mirror reflection of himself and he goes, God, I look old in this car. I need a new car. <laughs> so he, he goes in to look for a specific car that's going to make him look younger. <laughs> now, this is interesting. If only it was that easy. Okay, <laughs> right there. You stop with your questions right there. Stop with your questions right there. I just need to make him look good in a car. <laughs> right? But you haven't gone to the three levels of why. And the three levels of why, by the way, is, is just a, 
uh, psychological psychological discipline of saying, no matter what someone tells you first, keep digging, because there's probably a lot more. So it wasn't that, believe it or not. So the car salesman, though, is looking for this car. It's got to look have a certain amount <laughs> of cylinders in the car. It's got to be a little bit sporty. He's telling him what he wants. The, he's just asking him what he wants and needs, right? But unfortunately, this poor guy couldn't do a ride in the car with him when he gets up for work in the morning. Because when he gets up for work in the morning and gets in the car, the first stop he makes is at a 7-Eleven where he wants to get a big gulp. And darn it, he needs a cup holder that'll fit that darn big, big cup. Now, you and I logically would say a cup holder wouldn't make the final determination on a car that he's buying. But it was so. Where I'm going with is that little nuance there, those are the nuances we pick up in the mind of the market scenario. And I'll give you a hardcore example. I had a customer in the security space, again, not looking at their silos of excellence right now, looking at the marketplace. And I found out that every one of the owners of his competitors thought they needed a seat at the table. And they couldn't understand why the customer wasn't letting them get in front of the deal. So they are always victim of the purchasing department who just saw them as, you know, having screwdrivers and pliers and just give me a price and it better be the lowest price. That's how we're going to select. Wow. Who influenced that buying behavior by the customer? And that led me to a lot of different uh, resources and a lot of different data that later I'm not going to go into it, but later drove an innovative new way of going to the market that would let that customer break out of what we call a red ocean full of sharks and uh, race to the bottom pricing and uh, carve out a new niche in that in that industry. Does that make sense? It does. And so that research is so key and it's almost counterintuitive because Everyone wants to get to action. How do I build the company? And what you're saying is uh, a pause to identify what does the owner truly need based on their behavior and what is really happening in the market so you can identify that unique space for differentiation that they could then take advantage of. And again, all this is before looking at the company. Oh, and, and and Daniel, here's a real world one. Had a recent customer who says, gosh, you know, we really need sales training. And I'm not done with this mind of the market exercise yet. So I'm going to, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take whatever they are today and what? Improve it by one or two points? Or am I going to pause for 30 days, 60 days, get the strategy right and put the right tool in the hands of the right people in the company who can sell in a highly different way, a highly competitive way. Does that make sense? It does. So what do you do next? As, as you've gotten this research, you've got the market, are you now ready to go and start taking apart the machine and putting it back together? What do you do next? You sound like my, uh, my owners. 
You're done, right, Ron? You're done. This this is exciting. Why do you do so much research? We got to say we have we know what's happening. Actually, actually, it doesn't take that long, Daniel. But we can talk about that later. But then we um, this is this is really interesting. What have I just done in the mind of the market? I've taken a what? A snapshot in time, right? One and done. Never have to look at that market space again. So first, be careful. This has to be research that we have to find a way to be persistent because the market's always changing. Has to stay fresh, has to be evergreen. Right, it is not a project. It is a way of running a business. Again, the small business owner doesn't have a resource to do that. This is where we come in. So our engagements are evergreen. They aren't for three months, handing them a strategy. They're evergreen. We're going to constantly be the ones looking at the market space, getting ready for the next steps of strategic differentiation and highly competitive approach in the marketplace. But it's still a snapshot, isn't it? We're looking at current states. How do we look at future states and why should we do that? So you've heard me say this. Hey, you know, I just got a new client who's in the taxi industry. And I'm coming looking at the current state of the market, the yellow cabs versus the brown cabs versus the purple cabs, you know, all these different companies. And I'm understanding the influences and the, the fair structures. And I'm looking at all that and I'm done. Let's let's go create a strategy and a business plan. But I've forgotten something. Where's the new money going? Mm. Why would I want to new know where the new money's going? because it might tell me Uber's coming and that changes everything. So I do a mind of the investor. I understand where the new money is going that will influence their market possibly for years to come. And I want to be in front of that, not necessarily creating a startup, if you will, but again, another source of innovation is to know what's coming. What's that next wave? So I follow the money. So you so you then case the investor market, look at where the money is going. What else does that does that so that gives that gives the owner now a sense of you got a sense of where they are and what they need, what's happening in their space, that snapshot in time, but also a sense of where the river might be heading in the future so we can catch the water. Um I'm assuming uh, you tell me if I'm making a leap here, that also helps you get a checklist, if you will, of the things that um, if they go to sell, when they go to sell, will need to be in place to get that premium. Uh, And I call that a scorecard. Now, the thing about a scorecard is you just have to know how they're scoring. Same thing with clients, by the way. In the mind of the market, we do that too. What is their current scorecard? Doesn't mean we're going to buy off on it or not. Remember, strategic differentiation. So I'll give you a great example. I'm working with this energy company. And uh, in this exercise, the mind of the investor, we, we see where the new money's going in the new technology, the new processes. But to your point, we're also seeing where the acquisitions are occurring, the consolidations occurring. And most important, what is the scorecard for the acquirer? So this is where you get the comps, right? Oh my gosh, most companies in the energy space that look like you are selling for 4X EBITDA. Oh my gosh, there's one that 
just had a fire sale at 1x. Here's another one that got slightly more, about a 5x. What's the why behind that? What's the scorecard behind it? We need to know that. We don't have to accept it. And this is where the mind of the market and the, mm. market and the investor begin to intersect. A broker would accept that. A broker would say, hey, yeah, the, the prevailing comps are 4x, but maybe we can create an auction. Oh, there's a brilliant idea. Now everyone, <laughs> now everyone in the marketplace is going to know you're for sale, including your employees, because people are going to start going after your employees. So I, I call it the company dilution sale. <laughs> So, so, so Ron, that's interesting though, because my experience with owners is they get really excited when they, when they see comps. I mean, you know, you don't always know what your business is value. There's, there is no quick comps online, a Zillow marketplace like houses. So when you hear a friend say, or broker say an advisory group, Hey, you can get five X, four X, whatever X, um, that will get an owner excited but what you're saying is you want to know what the scorecard is but you don't need to accept it so say more oh absolutely so as uh, by the way we're all data driven right how do you think a broker comes up with the comps there's all sorts of ways they come up with those comps there's many data driven engines out there you can subscribe to that actually will give you a sense of What's going on right now today? I'll give you a snapshot of all the acquirers in different spaces. They're 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 public. You know, if if you ever want any of your people calling me, I'll share with them where you get that data. They're going to have to pay thousands of dollars for the subscriptions, but it's pretty easily understood. So the brokers aren't doing anything that is science driven. They're not doing deep study analysis. They're simply being the voice of the data-driven analyst companies. Do you see what I'm where I'm going? Mm -hmm. But there's no innovation there. there. There's no secret sauce there. So the broker's not adding any value except to help the owner package the deal. Just like a, a real estate broker for a residential property would put it on an MLS, tell you to put some new furniture in the house, paint the house, and uh, and away we go, right? But there's nothing nothing there that's going to get you a value premium. Ah, but guess where innovation comes in? Remember when I read you that little synopsis for my my uh, yeah. my adjunct class, leading uh, innovation and change. Ah, the, there's an innovation in selling a business. But guess what? You gotta you gotta bring someone like myself in early. My myself and my team early enough so we can shape the clay to make that claim. Does that make sense? That does. And I think that's getting to what you've so, described. So if you, if you come to, if you come, if you, if you come to me and say, Ron, I want to sell, I'm going to say, give me a year, give me two years, give me three years. Don't bring me in when you put it on a fire sale. Now, would I help you on that? Maybe. But where the real innovation comes in, if we can get there early with the clay, with these beautiful human beings you have as employees, with these processes that you have today, and, and then combine that with the insights of the mind of the market and mind of the investor and come up with a strategic value proposition for your future investors. And now we have an innovation selling system for the choir. Does that make sense? 
And that final part then is what you describe as the mind of, of the company. So you're going to then look at those different silos of excellence and the processes and the roles and how they all work together only after you have a sense of what the owner needs, what's happening in the market ecosystem and where the new money is going. So then you can craft that differentiated value proposition based on the opportunity, the window of opportunity, that new business model and what the company is ready to do. Is that what I'm hearing? That is correct. So then, then Ron, how would you describe the core competencies of the Sage Group? Is it because uh, you described this research process, this um, the innovation that getting that differentiated business model um, is is the core competency of the Sage Group sales? Is it ops? Is it marketing? Are you great at talent? Is it just research? What? How, how would you describe the um, the core competencies of the Sage Group? And I and I guess I'm also curious with that. How is the Sage Group different than? a management consultant, a business broker, or somebody who helps you with exit planning? Because you mentioned all those. So what are the core competencies and how is the Sage Group similar or different to those other options in the market for the small business owner? Well, you're just setting me up to unpack for another three hours. Is that what you're doing, Daniel? <laughs> <laughs> so um, first of all, hey, you know, if you have to go hire a broker to sell your business, but by, by the way, if you hire the Sage Group, you're not going to hire a broker. We're not brokers, but you're not going to hire a broker. And there's a whole business model that helps shape that premise that I'm not to go, in, go into right now. But you asked about how we're different. So I'm not going to actually say why we're better than XYZ. What I'm going to say is here's what you need. You need a core competency that isn't going to give you, <laughs> I used to say my my greatest competitor was out-of-work executives pretending to be consultants. <laughs> and, and, and the reason I said that is, quite frankly, the greatest danger for an owner is somebody coming in to advise them based on what they have done in the past. Instead of a, um, a company like the Sage Group, that looks at something with fresh eyes. We have done a great job at this age group destroying the mental constructs and the language that get in the way of us seeing clearly what is going on. And what is, you know, that old story of the emperor has no clothes. A lot of markets have gaps in the marketplace, but no one's calling them out for lots of reasons, Daniel. And that goes for vendors too. They tend to, vendors tend to rely on past experience. We don't. We rely on the data that we see and then create um, what I feel are innovative new ways of looking at that data to help our clients achieve a highly differentiated strategic value in their business. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, that does. And so all of those competencies that are needed, you know, the sales, the ops, the marketing, the finance, those get layered in, but it's not starting with, well, here's what we've done. We've helped increase revenue or done this marketing strategy. We know your industry well. In fact, what you're saying is that the person who is only relying on their industry expertise or their experience is dangerous because they're likely going to 
create a strategy that's based on what they've already done versus looking with fresh eyes at what could be right. and the new innovative opportunities for that business and the owner. So Which instead is- of keeping the veil over their eyes, you want to lift it and discover new possibilities. And we're not for everyone. That's exactly right. We're, we're a, I call ourselves a portfolio company. We're looking for a very specific kind of customer who wants to break through um, the mental constructs of their industry and themselves, by the way. But it, but it's hard for business owners. Uh, we had a uh, one that we thought we could really help take them to the next level. And they had a gentleman come in who was go- who represented, quite frankly, a very good company in the marketing space. Did a razzle-dazzle presentation. All we need to do is fill the funnel. Here comes the fire hose. No discussion of how sales would handle that funnel, by the way, or how we operationally fulfill the value proposition that the marketing team would put together, or how we would finance the growth associated with that. Where are we going to get the lender financing or the investor finance? You know, again, whole company approach, but we'll fill that freaking funnel for you. So you you can see how it happens, right? Because we want to solve one thing. You know, it says here we need diversity. We need inclusion. We need equity. Oh, by the way, your strategic plan stinks. And you're going to have a hard time sustaining that diversity, inclusion, and equity over time if you don't get the strategy and execution right. So those are things that I think are interconnected. So if you want to, if you want to think about the Sage Group, is we're the whole systems company, totally dedicated to creating that unique approach that excavates what you're uniquely positioned for in this unique garden of yours called a market. I lo- love that description. And it also helps me recognize how, to your point, it isn't for any everybody. Some people are thrilled to just get the industry comps and they can turn around and put the house on the market proverbially and move on to a new neighborhood. And so it has to be the right person who's truly looking for that path to value for the business, certainly, but also for themselves their people, and somebody who is willing to engage in the exciting and courageous adventure that you described as innovation. So I'm curious, uh, in my last couple of questions for you, Ron, um, you have, you've said to me that over the years, because you, you are so careful to align yourself with individuals and companies who you can truly help, um, that you've often said no more than you've said yes. You are working to jointly discern with an owner if if you are the one to help them take that exponential leap. Um, How does somebody know that they're ready for a path to value? And what is your scorecard when you're considering whether you give an owner pointers and direction and referral or whether you invite them into your portfolio of focus? What a great question. If you go to the website, it's it's fairly audacious. It says every everyone needs a path to value, personally, professionally, and within the context of their organization, okay? Everyone does need a path to value. So let's lay that out. Everyone needs a path to value. Now, you're asking a different question though, and that is, 
when are they ready for the sage group? And they're ready for the sage group when their notions of how they run the company run headlong into a risk. Oh, the business is going downhill or it's flattened or we have a key area that's broken where suddenly their notion of reality starts changing. Oh, I don't have a handle on the business or I'm tired and I'm burnt out. So it, oddly enough, it's when they reach that pain point, when they're reaching out, uh, that they're more likely to listen to a different approach. So that's one. And the similar thing happens with scale, Daniel. I know we're a $10 million company, but darn it, I know we can get to 100 million, but I also know enough to know I may not be the guy that gets us there. And so they start looking again um, at uh, a new reality. There's a great, there's there's this great line that I read somewhere and it goes like this. We must create the domain where humans continually deepen their understanding of reality and participate in shaping their future. That's the psychology I want when we partner with an owner. They are ready and willing to engage, but an active participation of co-creation for their future and open to a different way of looking at themselves, their market, and their company for the future. And that right there, Daniel, is a great conversation. This has been a great conversation, Ron. Thanks for letting me turn the tables and interview you today. <laughs> it's been fun, Daniel. Thank you so much for reaching out. And I, I got to tell you, I hope this resonates with some people out there and we can catch them in time where they aren't selling for pennies on the dollar five years from now and their employees look at the owner, not as a tragic event they're selling, but a wonderful fulfillment of the original value proposition of the leader. Isn't, wouldn't that be amazing? I love it. Everyone wants their own path to value. Ron, this has been a great conversation. Thank you.